Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of With an S. I'm so excited to share this talk with you. In this talk, I interview Sunil Gupta, who is the author of the book Backable. And Backable is all about well, how do you get people to take a chance on you and your business? In this episode, Sunil talks about his journey from being on the cover of the New York Times as the keynote speaker for the FailCon, which is a convention all about failure, to becoming a best-selling author, the creator of an incredible company called Rise that he sold um, quite successfully. And now he speaks all about what to do to get people to believe in you. He has spoken to the creators, the CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world. And in this episode, he's going to talk all about what they did and what you can do to get people to take a chance on you. He was so incredible and so gracious and so humble to join and share his failures, not just his successes, but his failures and real life applications for what to do in order to get get people to take a chance on your business. I just loved his book so much. I couldn't put it down. And I'm thrilled to introduce you to Sunil. With nothing further, here is the show. So let's go ahead and start off. First of all, I came upon your work when I saw Deepak Chopra on Instagram. And I thought, what is Deepak Chopra talking about? What's the story? We're talking about business, right? Usually talking about meditation. And so I downloaded the um, the preview of your book, the first few chapters. I could not put it down because it's so humble. You're so humble and you're so real and you're so honest. It was so inspiring. So I want to thank you for writing this book. No, it's really nice of you to say, Ozzy. It's, it's really wonderful to be on the show. And yeah, you know, it's interesting when you write a write a business book, but I consider it very much a book about life. You know, it's it's. We, we, I think we are in a lot of ways what 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 separates us from from you know any other species really is our imagination. But if you can't take the ideas that are inside your head and, and sort of bring them into the world, then then it's easy to feel very alone. It's very it's easy to feel disconnected. And uh, you know that was the conversation I had with Deepak, and I know that uh, I know you're passionate about that as well. So I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. Thank you. So inspiring. It's so true. You know, I meet so many people with so many ideas and they're so afraid to translate those ideas into products or action, you know, processes, classes. What do you say to people that have that fear? Yeah. You know, I, I think um, there tend to be three words that, that hold us back from the very beginning. And, and those three words are, I'm not ready. Like, I'm not ready to run with that idea. I'm not ready to speak my mind. I'm not ready to, um, you know, step into that leadership role. I meet uh, people every day who sort of who sort of share those three words with me, and I think all of us can relate to those those words. I, I know that I can. But the thing, Bobby, the thing that I have learned from you know having now spent over five years studying hundreds of extraordinary people from. Oscar-winning filmmakers to celebrity chefs to leaders of iconic companies to military leaders, you know that they all have their different styles. They all have their different paths. But I would say that there is one common denominator uh, amongst all of them, which is none of them were really ready to do what mm. they did. Not a single one of them. Uh, you know, three friends from design school were not ready to start Airbnb. A mid-level talent manager was not ready to start SoulCycle. 
a 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden, wasn't ready to build an environmental movement, and yet today Greta Thunberg is Time Magazine's youngest ever person of the year. And there were, there were setbacks and there were failures along the way, no doubt, but they all, they all sort, sort of adopted a mantra that I include in my book and I now try to live by every day, which is that the opposite of success is not failure, it's boredom. It's boredom. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about you for a second. I want to share your bio. You teach innovation at Harvard University. You are the author of Backable. Backable was a number one on the Amazon list and also for workplace behavior. Your book is rooted in your journey of a twice failed entrepreneur to a leader behind two IPOs being named the new face of innovation by the New York Stock Exchange. Your ideas have been backed by firms like Greylock and Google Ventures, and you've served as an entrepreneur in residence inside Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. You have personally backed startups, including Impossible Foods, Airbnb, 23andMe, Calm, and SpaceX. So you've had quite an entrepreneurial journey. And I was thinking it might be interesting to start off talking about what inspired you. And I know you were inspired by both of your parents in really unique ways. So maybe we can talk about your mom and then also your product and the story with your dad. Um, I think that'd be an awesome place to start. Sure, sure. No, I'm happy, happy to do that. You know, one thing I, I will say off the bat though, Ozzy, is I, I appreciate you sharing my bio, but you know, what, what, what typically isn't shared inside a bio are all of the failures, right? <sighs> so that's the LinkedIn version that you just shared, but, but hidden in there are, are many, many, are many, many misses. Two startups that did not work. I ran for Congress and lost. Uh, there, 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 there's, a, there's a lot in there. And, and I, I think, you know, I forgot who said this, but somebody said that, the, 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 that success is a lousy teacher. And uh. I totally agree with that. You know, mo most of what I think was channeled into this book and, and what I, I believe I have to share with my students and, and people that I coach today is really rooted in, in, in what I would have done differently. And so, um, and, I, and I think I learned that from, I think I learned that from my mom. And so, you know, my mom, my mom grew up in a refugee camp uh, mm -hmm. on the border of Pakistan and India, no running water, no electricity. Uh, but she did something really remarkable, which is that she taught herself how to read. And the first book that she read from, from cover to cover was the biography of Henry Ford. And she reads this book and she decides that one day she wants to be an engineer with Ford Motor Company. Now you gotta think about this for a moment. She doesn't have running water. She doesn't have electricity. She is a woman living in a time where, you know, if you were, if you were a woman, the, the, the lucky thing to do would be to marry a man of means and, and work in the kitchen, uh, cook and clean. And uh, yet her parents somehow get behind this impossible sort of imp dream, this, this rebellious progressive streak of hers to move to the United States and, and uh, become an engineer. And they save every penny or every rupee that they have to make it happen. She's able to get on a boat to the United States. She gets a scholarship to Oklahoma State University. Wow. The day after she graduates as the only woman in her engineering class, she drives to Detroit, Michigan, where she applies for her dream job. And she's, she manages somehow to get herself in a room with the hiring manager. Now this hiring manager looks at her resume and then he looks at her application and he's like, wait a second, are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she says, yeah. And he says, well, I'm, I'm sorry. We actually don't have any female engineers working here right now because see, this was the 1960s 
And Ford Motor Company was in its heyday. I mean, it was it was the it was the Google of the day, uh, the big company that that had the best talent, um, thousands upon thousands of engineers on staff, but not a single one of them was a woman. Not a single and, one. Not a single one. So she picks up her resume and picks up her purse. She's really deflated in this moment, and she begins to walk out of the room. And then, almost in this last sort of almost a bit of courage, unless she, she summons all of the grit that she possibly can. She turns around, she looks at him, this guy, and she, she tells him her story of all of the struggle that it took for her to get to this country, for her to get to Detroit, for her to get to this very room. And then she says to him, look, things are changing. And if you don't have any, any women engineers, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. And it was in this moment that this middle manager from suburban Michigan decides to, he's so moved that he decides to advocate for her. He goes out and he fights with his team. He fights with his managers and they met the Hingarani gets the job offer and becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. Wow. That's my wow. mom's courage. Courage, so much courage. So much courage, so much courage. And I'm also just constantly, especially as I was writing this book, continued to come back to this idea that you know, the subtitle of the book is how do you convince somebody to take a chance on you? And it continued to hit me over and over again that had a middle manager from suburban Michigan not taken a chance on a refugee from the other side of the world, mm. then I wouldn't be here right now with you to tell you this story. Wow. Wow, so much courage and so much conviction too. Conviction is something that you speak a lot about. And I'm curious to hear from you, like in terms of parenting, when you were being raised, are there specific moments you can remember that your mom imparted these values on you? Mm. Well, you know, one thing that mom was, I think, really intent on and dad as well was, was this idea that, you know, um, you've got to figure out how to get along with people who are different than you. Mm. And, and one of the ways that they really sort of, I think, forced that to happen or, you know, were insistent upon that happening is, we decided as a family not to move to an area where there were other Indian American families. You know, there, there, were, there were certainly pockets within Michigan where you found lots and lots of Indian Americans. We decided deliberately not to move to one of those areas. And my brother and I would, would, would always ask, why? Like, why did you make that decision? And part of the reason that my mom gave me is, look, you gotta, you gotta figure this out. Uh, you know, you gotta figure it out now or you're gonna figure it out later. But I don't want you to wow. be the kind of person who's constantly putting yourself in a comfort zone, because if you do that, it may at some point limit you. And so I want you to learn at a very young age how to figure this out. And it was hard because so, both so they to an area where the culture, their culture was, they, they were not with people speaking the same language. They had to learn English. They had yeah. to learn the American culture. Okay. So I have like a rapport with your parents because I moved to a very Israeli neighborhood. So this story is like touching my heart, making me feel really good. So was that hard for your family to do to, you know, move where you were essentially different? Than well, I'd love to, well, I'd love to hear, Ozzy, if you're willing, I'd love to hear for a moment from you about this. Like you've moved to Israel, right? And yeah. obviously, you know, it, it is part of your culture, part of your heritage, but a huge sort of difference from where you were living in Los Angeles before. Well, what, how would you relate to this experience? Yeah, huge difference. So we saw this rural life, like these little villages of people who all knew each other and this really peaceful sort of joyful, like idyllic version of living. 
in a yeah. community. And we wanted that like real Israel experience. We didn't want to move to an area where everything's in English. Right. So to be totally honest, we have the best of both worlds because we moved to a little kibbutz where most people are Israeli, my kids, it was sing or swim, like they had to learn Hebrew right away when we came. Right. But I do have an English speaking neighborhood nearby. So if I need that, I can sort of rely on that as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we wanted to, our kids didn't culturate very similar to your parents. And, and not that I com can compare my story coming from LA. Um, I have so much respect for, our, for your family's history. It's well, incredible. Very, very similar because, you know, we were in this, we were in this all white, pretty much all white school, all white neighborhood. And yet at the same time, every Sunday we would go to temple and that's where uh, we would connect yep. with, with, with culture and, and heritage. And I, I would play with kids who look like me. And, and so there was this, there was this back and forth and maybe, maybe you're sort of setting up right yeah. now for your kids, which I, which I love. And, and I think, I think very much, uh, you know, when I now, when I now sort of look at friends of mine who grew up in more of the sort of Indian neighborhoods, I realized that there was value of that and not necessarily one way better than the other, but I realized sure. that what my parents were setting out to do, which was to get me out of my comfort zone, make me realize that like, you know, nothing good in life is going to come without you taking risk and learning how to do things that you're afraid of. Um, that, 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 I think that worked. Out of curiosity, when you were a child, did you feel like you were in a challenging situation or did you automatically have this sort of like embrace of discomfort? Oh, I did not have the embrace of discomfort. Um, that, that, took, that took a long, that took a long time. And, you know, I think um, I, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think when, when you're little kids, you kind of feel like you look like everybody else, right? And then as you grow a little bit older, you know, I'd say probably around sixth, seventh grade, sort of the differences started to become clear. And it was interesting for me because I, you know, when I was in sixth grade, that was 1991. And we had, we had now gone to war for the first time, you know, this mm. was desert storm. And that was a very exciting time for, I think, you know, especially young boys to see sort of a country go to war. We had never experienced that before. And it just so turned out that the people we were going to war with looked a, looked a hell of a lot like me, mm. right? My color skin. And, and, and I think that, you know, there were certain kids in, in my school who I think thought, you know, that was their sort of patriotic duty to kind of give the, to give the brown guy, you know, some guff. Um, and uh, so that made it harder. But I, I, you know, I think, I think that at the same time, you know, there were, there were lots and lots of, there were lots of kids who sort of also were, were, were interested, who wanted to know, like, what's it like? And, and those tended to be sort of lifelong friends of mine. So, you know, it, I think, I think it cuts both ways. It is a, I think about this often because I have an eight-year-old and I have a four-year-old and I do wonder to myself, like, would I want to put them in that situation? Uh, what age, what age is appropriate? But what I can tell you though, is that it, it really did shape, I think, who I am, you know, so it's tough to look back on a life that, you know, you, you, where you are, you are content with where you are, where you, where you, you feel like you're in a place of growth and look back and say, I wish that wouldn't have happened because it made me who I am. Every single step of the way, right? That's right. Every step of the way. What a journey. Wow. Incredible. So let's talk about a little bit about failure. You had this moment sure. Yeah. where your mom opened the New York times and she discovered you were on the front page. So let's talk about that for a minute. How did you end up on the front page of the New York times as the speaker at the convention of failure, FailCon? Yeah. 
Let's yeah. talk about that for a moment. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things where you wish it would be a, an article about success, but it was an article about failure. So what happened was a few years ago, I got a call from, a, from an organizer of a conference called FailCon, which stands for Failure Conference. And as I mentioned before, you know, I had a couple of startups that went nowhere. Um, I had at that time, I was working for a company called Groupon. I, I joined early and Groupon did very well in the beginning, but then had this almost precipitous decline. And uh, we lost like 80% of our market value within, within you know, a few months. Wow. And so um, I get this call saying, hey, we're doing this conference on failure and we would love for you to be the keynote speaker. And so I, I, I do, I, I, take, I take on the role and I'm on stage and I don't realize this at the time, but there's a reporter from the New York Times in the audience. And so, yeah, fast forward to my mom and, and also me sitting in my apartment, um, you know, opening that day's New York Times. And, and there I am. It's a full length article on failure with my face as the cover of this story. And this article goes viral. You know, this is, this is around the time where I think we're now just starting to have a conversation about failure in a way that we hadn't before. Failure is starting to become kind of like an in vogue topic. Failure and, and creativity, so, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and so, you know, it, it is, the article spreads <laughs> to the point where if you at that time would have Googled failure, my, my <laughs> face would have been one of your top search results. Still to this day, that article on failure, listing my failures, will be one of your top search results. How did you feel? What was that like for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because at, I had spent so much time trying to craft this image of success. And now I sort of had this, this, this sort of sinking feeling that no matter what I do from here on out, this is going to be the article that people see right away when they, when they search my name. And to my ego, that was, that was hard. You know, I, I, it was, it was, it was a hard, it was a hard moment. It was, it was funny in a lot of ways, but it was also like, my gosh, this is, this is my online profile now. A friend of mine who I actually grew up with when I was talking about sort of going to temple as a kid, it reminded me of a story that we had heard. And it was, it was a story of, it was just a, uh, you know, a lesson that Buddha had passed on to his disciples. And, and the lesson was really simple. It was that when you, when you um, feel pain, there are two arrows that are shot. The first arrow is the arrow that punctures your skin, right? And, and there's nothing you can actually do about that arrow. But the second arrow is where you ascribe meaning to the pain. What, what do you actually do with it? And, you know, when he reminded me of that story, I started to think about like, all right, what can I actually do with this article? How can I turn this into a, a positive? And the way that I decided to try doing that is by emailing people who I admired people who I had never met, but, but I aspired to be in some way. And so I, I emailed, you know, a few dozen people from all different walks of life who had been sort of at the top of their respective industries. And I would, I would write in the email, I'd say, as you can see from this article in the New York Times, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but would you be willing to, to, to grab a few minutes uh, with me, grab coffee or jump on the phone to give me some advice? And the response rate, to that email was extraordinarily high. I mean, people, people write me back saying, you know, laugh out loud, of, of course, I, I'd be willing to grab, grab some time with you. But not only that, Ozzy, it was that once we actually were having these conversations, now that they weren't sort of, you know, in the, in the penumbra of success, they were in the penumbra of failure, we were able to have these really honest conversations. Mm. And the thing, that I, the thing that I learned, the thing that stuck out to me the most was that 
these people who we sort of consider to be, um, I think, uh, admirable or extraordinary, oftentimes when you rewind the clock in their career and you go back to the version one, where they began, you see a completely different version. You see somebody who, who is very different from who they are today. And there were a set of steps usually that they took to become who they are. But it's easy to forget that because we, so I, at least for me, and I know many of the people that I coach, we sometimes assume when we look at somebody and we say, well, that person is extraordinary. We assume in a lot of ways that they've been extraordinary all along. But the reality is that there was a path that they took to get there. And that's what really got me interested in unpacking how, what were the, what were the specific things that they did to so brilliant. get themselves there? And in my case, mm-hmm. I wanted to go one click deeper, which is I started to notice that many of these people were what I call backable, right? They were able to get inside a room. It wasn't just that they came up with great ideas. They were also able to convince others to get excited about those ideas. And the trick of it is that even when those ideas weren't obvious, when they were brand new and there wasn't a lot of data to show like that's going to work, they still were able to get people excited enough to say, you know what, I will go along with this. And what I found is that that's such a key part of of living the type of career that you wanna live, right? Is not just coming up with something, it's getting the people around you excited about it. So that's Mm -hmm. why I wanted to write this book. It's, it's such a special book. I love how it's written. I love the fact that you break down this process. You did your research and it's just, it's just, I, I just I really appreciate it so much. Thank you. Um, let's talk about Rise for a moment because you had this incredible idea that came from a really challenging situation in your family. Yeah. So you created something out of pain, out of yeah. someone else's pain to help. And I would love to just dig into that and hear about your process creating rise. Yeah, yeah. So when I was a, when I was uh, nine years old, uh, my dad dropped me off at school because he had a doctor's appointment. So he's taking a day off and he wasn't going into the office that day. It was a pretty routine appointment. And um, you know, the plan was he was going to pick me up at about three o'clock after school. And so I still remember sort of waiting there for him. And, and he, he, you know, at half hour passes by, he's not there. An hour passes mm-hmm. by, he's not there. About an hour and a half after, after we were supposed to meet, my aunt pulls into the parking lot and I get in the car and she is driving me back home and she tells me, hey, when, you're, when your father was in, you know, doing his, his checkup, uh, something happened. And what had happened is that he had collapsed and, you know, his, his, heart, his heart began to fail and they rushed him to the hospital and uh, performed an emergency uh, quadruple bypass surgery on him. So um, scary. Yeah. Very, very, very scary moment, especially because at that time he was, he was in his forties, his early forties. So just not something that typically happens at that, at that age. So we get home and, you know, my mom, my, my, my mom is waiting for me. We, we, we go to the hospital. She's already been there. She came back to pick me up. We go to the hospital. And, uh, and I remember seeing my dad and feeling like he had aged 20 years overnight, you know, mm. just a very different, very different person. Uh, we spent, you know, I, I remember also after, you know, a couple of nights at the hospital, we end up going home and I'm in the backseat of the car and they had given, they'd given us a bunch of paperwork. They give you paperwork when you leave. And some of that paperwork is the how, how to actually live at home. Now you're not in the hospital anymore. You have gone through this incredibly, you know, invasive procedure. Your life has changed. What do you need to do at home now in order to prevent going back to the hospital, going undergoing this again. Mm. And what they had in these, in these pieces of paper were not just like exercise, but how to eat. 
And the way that they recommended to eat was eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, we don't eat broccoli. We don't eat Brussels sprouts. Like that, and not because, not because we're, we're, we're terrible eaters, but because we're Indian eaters. We eat Indian food at home. You know, we uh-huh. eat chicken masala, we eat, we eat dal, we eat rice. Like that's our diet. And I remember thinking to myself, I've never seen my dad eat broccoli. I've never seen him really eat Brussels sprouts before. How is this going to stick? How is this really going to work? At age and, nine, and you were already thinking, how is this going to yeah, work? Yeah, I, I just like, wow. my, my thought was, this just isn't going to work. It's not yeah. going to stick. And as it turns out, for the first few weeks, like, we really, really struggled. Like, my dad was like, I, no, I can't. I can't just eat this. I can't, I can't rip the Band-Aid off and just completely throw a diet that I've been on for 40 years. Like, the way that I was raised, what's in my blood, and throw that out and just start eating completely differently. It's not going to work. And I think fundamentally, that's part of the problem that we have with healthcare today is that we, we have this sort of end of one mentality, which is like, because it works for one, it's going to work for everybody, but, it, but it's not. And that, it, that was the case in, in our house. Lucky for us, insurance kicked in and helped pay for the cost of a nutritionist to help wow. customize a diet that was really going to work for us. And, you know, I believe that it was that person, that coaching that is the reason that my father is still alive today. Yeah, you know, I, I just spoke to him yesterday. He 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 walked three miles. You know, he he lives a healthy lifestyle, a healthy diet, but it, it's one that it's one that fits him. And and I I never forgot that story. I never forgot the power that one compassionate expert can can really have on someone's life. And um I always sort of had this feeling that like, as we're starting to get into this mobile revolution, and we're starting to see companies like Uber and Airbnb that are disrupting transportation and hospitality, but what about health? What's going to happen with health? And, uh, and so what I decided to do was sort of go back to the root of that story. And, uh, you know, along with a, a small team of people, I created this product called Rise. And what we do with Rise is we matched you one-on-one with a personal nutritionist, but right over your mobile phone. And so instead of having to go to an office or, or even jump online the way that we are right now, it's, it's, it was through photos. You would take photos of your food, just like Instagram, taking photos of your so food. So brilliant. Somebody just coaching you and adjusting the way that you eat, offering you recipes, understanding what your tastes are, what your preferences are, what your, what your constraints are, where you're eating. You know, I noticed that you had a, had a meal at this location because it was probably within the radius of your work. But here are two other restaurants that have some clean, cleaner items on the menu that I think might fit your tastes, right? So to have somebody who's, who's coaching you at that ability, um, but at the same time, at a fraction of the cost, we felt like was going to work really well. And the company, you know, the company ended up, I think just like most startups ended up sort of slow out the gate. It didn't, it didn't take off like a rocket ship, but the inflection point for us was Michelle Obama was working on uh, her own obesity initiative. And they were doing it very much through, you know, nutritionists. They were helping people who were in these, who were in these underserved areas get access to good quality coaching. And uh, we we eventually met and said, hey, why don't we bring Rise in as sort of the technology partner to what you're doing? And once that happened, Rise really became a brand. It became it became noticed around the country, and eventually we started partnering with different institutions, and and it sort of took off from there. Apple named us the best app of the year in 2015, and and. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was quite, quite a ride. That's so awesome. So you have officially sold your company. 
I did. Yeah. We sold it to a company called One Medical, which is, a, you know, I think a forward thinking tech oriented uh, primary care provider. So brick and mortar clinics, mm-hmm. you actually walk in. But the idea is you walk in and you see a primary care physician, you know, and you have a great experience and, and you know, they, they, they've made it so that, you're, you know, you actually you actually enjoy this this interaction. It's not rushed. There's not a crowded waiting room. It's, it's, it's sort of nice and it feels nice and the aesthetic is nice and the experience is, you know, has, has been rated really well by customers. The reason that we ended up tying up together, the reason they ended up buying us is what happens in between those experiences is just as important, right? So you mm-hmm. see your primary care provider maybe a couple of times a year, but over the, the following, you know, six months or so, what, what happens? Can, can we keep you connected in some way so that your health doesn't just feel like this transaction, but it actually feels like a, an ongoing relationship. It sounds like a dream. It sounds like you really have that customized, compassionate coaching that's culturally sensitive yeah, and just really like an embrace. It's so beautiful. So I have a, a question for you about the name of your app. How did you come up with the name Rise? Because we have another thing. We have a lot in common. We have both have four-year-olds. We yeah. both went to Sunday school. Okay. And I have a community called Rise. And- huh. Yeah. So I would love to hear how you chose the name you know, for your it's, app. You know, it's, it's a, naming is so hard when you come up with new ideas. I remember we, we had this massive spreadsheet and because one of the root things that we were, that we were thinking about was sort of weight loss, right? Like how do you lower somebody's risk for diabetes? How you lower risk for, for you know, hypertension and heart disease? A lot of it does come back to sort of weight loss, but I felt like that was too tactical. Like that was too, that was too, that didn't capture the spirit of what we were trying to do. Right. Right? Like I didn't want to have, you know, uh, something that sounded like a weight loss app because ultimately the result, the result of getting yourself in shape, if, if even if it is through losing weight is that you feel much better about yourself. It's, it's what happens as, as a result of that, you know, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually, when you can, when you can physically sort of get yourself into a healthier place. And so um, I wanted a brand that was really going to feel like that, even if it was somewhat counterintuitive when people are trying to lose weight through an app called Rise. It's like, what is that? Is it, that seems a little bit odd, but no, for me, it really, it really made sense. And as I started to see the customer stories, you know, it felt, it felt right to me because it wasn't, it wasn't, Hey, you know, I lost weight. And, and so therefore I can fit into my, my genes was more sort of, I lost weight and now I feel like a better parent. Like I feel, I feel like a better mm. spouse. It, you know, it, it, as, as we know, it just runs so much deeper than that. So much deeper. So much deeper. I mean, you know, it's funny because I, I went at this thinking to myself that I want to take creativity and apply it to the field of well-being, right? I want to, I want to use creativity and innovation to make things better in this, in this world of well-being. What I didn't realize is, is that it works both ways. Well-being feeds into creativity as well. If you're not, if you're not feeling like your best self, if you're, if you don't, if you don't feel good generally, you can't be innovative. You can't be as creative as you, as you, as you want to be. So the creativity and well-being are, are, I'm almost intimately connected. And Rise is what I felt like was the brand that represented both of those. I love it. I love it. When I was in college, I was really struggling my first year with some mental health challenges. And I moved home. I actually failed my first semester and moved home. And I had a neighbor who was dying of cancer and she took it upon herself to be my mentor. Wow. And her license plate said rise. That's what it said on the license plate. And she always told me, she said, take care of yourself, your mind, body, and spirit, and everything else will fall into place. Wow. 
And so my community is a community of female entrepreneurs who are really purpose-driven. And so it's like this theme we come back to, this importance of really loving ourselves so that we can love each other and serve the world. I, 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 I love I love that Ozzy and well it's such a touching story and I, I mean you know I, I recently went to the Hoffman Institute I don't know if you've heard of that but there's there's a process called the Hoffman process and okay. it's a it's a it's a one week program it's a group retreat I'd heard about it through you know uh, other other podcasts Tim Ferriss did an interview with the uh, with the founder of Tom's. And uh, the founder of Tom's had gone to this process and spoke very highly of it. And so I decided to check it out. And it was interesting because, you know, it's a very, very intense thing. You, you, you check in all of your technology when you walk in. So you have no, you have no way of communicating with the outside world. My wife had, had a phone number for the Institute for the physical landline. So in case anything blew up at home, she could get in touch with me. But besides that, there was just no communication with the outside world. You are in this process. And after seven days of just grueling internal work, I landed in very much the place that you, that it seems like you've landed in, which is mm. it just comes back to self-love. Anything that you want to create in the world um, has to come from, I think, your, your cup of tea spilling over into that rather than trying to you know, operate at a half level and figure out ways to distribute whatever you have left. It just doesn't work. You end up running out of runway. And, 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 you know, it's, I, I, I've come to, I've come to sort of see the world as in very much like we, we talk about burnout and you see people who have, I think the flame inside of them. And then you have people who don't have that flame anymore. And there's sort of that, there's almost like that pilot light that, that you can hear the, like the tick, tick, tick sound, but there's no, mm, there's no it's flame, not lighting. right. It's not mm. lighting. And I've been there for sure. And so I think we go back and forth to this process of like trying to relight our flame over and over again. It burns out, we relight, burns out, we relight. How do we actually keep that flame alive so that we don't keep relighting it over and over again? I think it's self-love. Self-love. So, so let's talk about self-love for a moment. Like how would you advise your kids or how do you model for your kids what self-love looks like, what that is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I'm still trying to figure out myself. And so I don't know if I can model just yet, but uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, in Hinduism and I know, I know you're, you, you know, you you seem to be spiritual as well. I would love to hear yes. your perspective on this, you know, right. but you know, in Hinduism, the, there is the, the, I think the most popular book or most well-read book in Hinduism is the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is this 18 chapter book. It's pretty small and it's really just two people talking. It's one person who has this, who's having a crisis of confidence and is completely burnt out, completely at odds with the world. And another person who is his coach, who we later find out in the end, near the wow. end of the book, that this person is, is, is God. And it's, it's a one-on-one coaching session. And one of the, one of the big themes that I think, you know, people like Gandhi and people like Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who all followed the Bhagavad Gita, one of the big themes Mm. that they really, they really sort of, I think, found important was this idea of detachment, right? And, And detachment, I think is really, can be, can be misunderstood in the West because it can be perceived as disinterest, but it's not. Mm. Detachment is more about the dependency on the outcome right? It's not that you don't care about the outcome. 
You can very much care about an outcome and yet at the same time not be emotionally dependent on that. And as soon as we become emotionally dependent on an outcome, that's when I think our flame can burn out very, very easily, right? That, that's Interesting. What- so it's like, it's like this equanimity, having yes. this emotional equanimity, no matter what the outcome is, it's like being at peace. I, I, I love that word. You know, equanimity right. is, is one, of the, one of the least used and yet most important words in the English language, right? Which is this distance between impulse and response. And, you know, Viktor Frankl's work, who says that like in between this impulse and response is our, is our, that's that's our our freedom. Right. And Mm -hmm. I, I, it's, it's amazing how similar, you know, great thinkers like Viktor Frankl or whomever it was that wrote the Bhagavad Gita 2,500 years ago. Incredible. In common, because it's effectively, it comes back to that, which is, you know, we are all, we are, even back then, thousands of years ago, we were inundated with external stimuli, right? Approval, a sense of wanting to belong, and all these sort of stimuli that were that were coming at us and saying, you are enough or you are not enough, right? Mm-hmm. And being able to create that space and being able to, in some ways, detach yourself from that stimuli to decide for yourself how dependent you want to be on that or not right, is, is I think probably the most important thing that I can teach them. And then the question is, the question is how, right? And, you know, for me, I think, it, I think it really comes back to what measuring what matters to you, right? Not what matters to other people, but what really matters to you. You know, I, I spend my time today, I'm, I'm a, I spend as much time as I can working with the country of Bhutan, the kingdom of Bhutan. Oh, and really? Yeah. And so I, I went to, I went to Bhutan a few years ago and just became really fascinated by just everything about it and including the way that they measure progress. You know, the, the way that Bhutan measures progress is not based on what, based on GDP. GDP is how most countries measure, you know, success, but Bhutan measures progress based on what they call gross national happiness. Mm. Which GDP and economic growth are part of that. It's not that it's unimportant, but it, it all rolls up into this higher level sort of idea of how happy truly are our people right now. And if we're not moving the dial on that, then, then, how do we, then how do we fix that and start moving that? And so there's this survey, this very exhaustive survey that they've been doing for over 50 years now to understand really what, how, do you, how do we measure our people's happiness? How do we move it in the right direction? And when I was there, you know, I, I had a chance to spend time with the research team. And I asked them, hey, is there, is there like a single question? When you're out there in the field and you're, and you're calculating this metric and you're asking the questions, is there one question that you can ask that can really give you a sense of someone's level of happiness? And they said to me, yeah, actually, as a matter of fact, there is. And the question is, if you were in real trouble today, mm-hmm. if you were in real trouble, is there someone that you could call and know with 100% certainty that that person would be there for you. That is such a good question. Such a good question, right? And they believe that people who have an answer to that, a clear answer to that, are much more likely to be happy. But there so was a- happiness twist. is connection. It is, it is. And, and that's why it makes this twist so interesting to me because the, the, the other flip side of it is, whose list are you on? Who can call you and know with 100% certainty you will be there for them. And they know that. They know that. And they believe people who have a clear answer to that question have an even higher likelihood 
of being happy. In other words, like you said, it's, it's a connection. It's not a transaction. It's a, it's a, it's a true connection. It's not a line. It's a circle. Mm, So beautiful. It's so inspiring that we can let everything go and just focus on our human connections. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how do you, how do we surround your kids and my kids with that connection? I think if they have that, then I, you know, I think that that is probably one of the most important things that we can, we can do for them to have their own self-love, right? Which is these, these deeper connections that aren't transactional, that won't really matter whether they, you know, succeed in an objective sense that there are going to be people who are there around them and they understand the importance of that and the importance of being there for those people as well. That I think that that's probably a big part of it. Mm, such a beautiful answer. Thank you so much for the inspiration. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I want to circle back and just like that piece of advice for that person who comes to you and says, Sunil, I, I have this idea. I, I want to do something to make the world a better place, but I don't feel ready. Yeah. What are we going to say to them? How are we going to get them to rise up? It's great. It's great. Uh, so it's, it's exactly the right question. And I get it all the time. And, and I think it begins with convincing yourself first convince yourself first. And it's, it's really the first chapter in, in this book. And what, what, what I mean by that is that oftentimes what we will do is we will share our idea with, with people before it's actually ready to be shared. Right. And we will put it out there and we won't get the response that we're looking for. And so we get really deflated. Right. And then we, and we sort of kill an idea before it ever really had a chance. And so one of, the, one of the mistakes I think that I see people make, and I used to make this as well, is believing that either I'm going to share this with the world right away, or I'm going to sort of tuck it away in a drawer. But there's this middle path of action. And the middle path of action is actually spending deliberate time alone every day, taking what I call in the book incubation time to really start to just develop the idea, right? And the way that we develop, the way we take this incubation time can vary. I've met people who love to draw. They just love to draw their idea out. They just, they're very visual. I've met people who like to just take long walks and just think about their idea. And as they're taking these walks, they make little notes on their phone. I'm more of a writer. So I just like to sit down at my desk and I spend, you know, if, I have a, if I'm cooking a new idea, I'll spend at least 15 to 20 minutes a day just writing, just writing free form about the idea. No structure, no sort of, no, 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 I've got to, fill out so many pages in a day. It's just, I'm just writing. And just I'm like allowed. free writing, letting yourself download whatever's coming through. Exactly. Letting yourself download whatever going through and giving yourself some freedom to wander. Because sometimes, you know, one of the most important things about incubating a new idea is that you want to fall in love with the problem, but not necessarily fall in love with the solution. When we fall in love with a solution, we immediately put boundaries around what it is that we're trying to create. And then when those boundaries start to kind of fall apart or they're not working necessarily, we're like, well, this is just a bad idea. It may not be a bad idea. When we, when we fall in love with a problem, that liberates us to actually start going in different directions, to start allowing it to morph a little bit, right? And as it begins to morph, we start to kind of realize, all right, that path may not work, but this one might. And we, it's almost a journey that we want to sort of take together. Now, a couple of things about incubation time that I think is important. Number one is that you, you want to you want to um, 
you don't want to allow yourself an infinite amount of incubation time because that, that, you know, getting back to your question of like, Hey, I'm not ready. We find people out there all the time that have been incubating ideas for years and they're just not, they're not sharing it. Right. And one of the more important things I think you can do is to find someone to share it with that isn't necessarily that final gatekeeper right? So this is a friend or a friendly colleague, or it's somebody who you can share it with, who isn't the person you're looking for, for a yes or a no, right? And the way that I think about that, and this is the second thing, is to actually put time on the calendar with that person. Ahead put it of on your, the calendar. Which put it on the calendar. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll call up a friend. I'll say, listen, I've got an idea that I'm working on right now. And three weeks from now, I'd like to share it with you. Can we put time on the calendar now for three weeks from now. And usually the friend will be like, yeah, well, what's this all about? And I'll say, well, I can't, I can't, I can't share that with you right now because again, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to preemptively share it and then be dependent on this person's reaction. Right. Mm. So, but I say, look, I got three weeks now where I am going to incubate this idea and I know that's on my calendar. So there's a little bit of external. Brilliant. And, but at the same time, it gives me enough space where I get to, I get to really sort of start to convince myself first. That's brilliant. So rather than just writing it down for yourself, you're holding yourself accountable by putting it on the calendar with another person and exactly. giving yourself three weeks. To- exactly. Wow. This is so good. It has been such a pleasure having you. Everyone who's listening to this episode, you got to get the book backable. I dare you to read the introduction and not buy the rest because it's that good. Okay. That's what's happening. Sunil, this has just been such a joy having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for joining me. It has been such a joy having you on this episode. Joining me here was Sunil. And I want you to think about what is one practical application, one takeaway, one thing you learned from this episode that you can implement in order to move your business forward. And if you're not a where yet I have an incredible community of female entrepreneurs. So if that is you, if you are an entrepreneur, whether you're starting your journey or you're further along in your journey, check out my community. It's called Rise. You can check it out at drozzy.co backslash rise and learn about the incredible things that are happening in Rise and see if you might like to join us. So thanks again for being here this week on the show and wherever you are in the world, I hope that you are meeting yourself with kindness because you deserve it. You are showing up, you are serving and may you be surrounded by so much kindness and success in your journey. Until next week, see you soon. Every blessing.